Hi everyone, I'm Adam Johnson. I'm a dad and a rare disease patient advocate, a self-proclaimed dadvocate. From the onset of symptoms and even after an eventual diagnosis, the isolation was almost as excruciating as the symptoms themselves. I felt so alone in so many ways. One of the most prominent ways in particular was as a parent. I knew I couldn't be the only person with a rare disease who was also trying to raise children, but it sure felt like I was. As I've learned, when there's not a specific community you're looking for, one that you need, sometimes you just have to make it yourself. It's taken a while, but I finally decided to do just that. And here we are. This is Parents is Rare, a series brought to you by Energy in Action. Living life as a parent with a rare disease can be quite paradoxical. We laugh and cry, we're vulnerable and scared, we're brave and afraid, all at the same time. Parents is Rare is a community where parents like me, who have a rare disease or chronic illness, can connect, share, support, and be supported. Welcome back to the Parents is Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. Today's episode is wonderfully different from many of the others that I've had. First, this is the episode that kicks off the second year of Parents is Rare, which I'm very excited about. And this particular discussion was recorded live and in person, which I really enjoyed. It was also recorded with someone who doesn't have a rare disease or a child with a rare disease. So in that sense, there's not a direct affiliation with a personal family type of connection to rare disease. Yet it's an important conversation that I'm glad to have had with somebody who is incredibly important to rare disease at large. Dr. Tim McLaren is a dad and a wonderful partner and advocate in the rare community who is doing stellar work. He went from being a physician to becoming the co-founder and head of product at Medical Intelligence One, where the mission is to care for patients based on their own deeply informative data with wisdom derived from a partnership between human and machine intelligence, trained on data from billions of other humans and all the world's medical knowledge. Tim co-founded Medical Intelligence One because this mission really inspires him. It drives him. It's his passion and it's his obsession. And at Medical Intelligence One, they are executing the mission. Tim is also launching and hosting a show called Diagnostic Odysseys, which I'm excited about. In this series, they're diving into patient stories, and you all know that I'm a fan of that, in hopes to shorten the diagnostic odysseys that we endure. So if you don't get enough of the two of us here on the Parents is Rare series, you can look forward to our episode on diagnostic odysseys in the not-too-distant future, and I'll be sure to share that with you when it's out. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Tim McLaren. All right, hello, everybody. Adam Johnson back here with you. This is the Parents is Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. I am pleased to be your host, and I'm coming to you live from San Diego at the Town and Country Resort. This is the first live conversation that I've recorded on my podcast. It's been going on for about a year now. So excited to be here. To add to the thrill for me, I am currently wearing the headset from the one and only Effie Parks, and it is bedazzled. And my friend Tim here that's with me is going to have to take a photo of me. Are you good with that, Tim? Can we do that before we finish up? Oh, yeah. This thing is fantastic. You guys need to see this. Oh, I love it. She's got a whole setup for me. So thank you, Effie, for allowing me to don your headset. This is a momentous occasion for me. I love it to death. Um, And you've got the Once Upon a Gene sticker on here. So everybody make sure to come out, check out the Once Upon a Gene podcast as well with Effie Parks. But... Right now, I'm, I'm pleased to, to be joined by a, a newfound friend, 
that I met yesterday here at the Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit. Tim is a wonderful connection that I was able to make. And, you know, typically while I'm having conversations on the podcast, I speak with other parents who have a rare disease themselves. And this time we're going to put a little bit of a different spin on it, but still a very important message and a very important work that Tim's doing. So Tim, thanks for taking time to join me. And side note, thanks for helping me get everything set up with the tech here. <laughs> My <laughs> Appreciate pleasure. <it. laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for letting me uh, join you here on your podcast. This is, this is a great opportunity. It's been wonderful meeting you and, and all the folks that I've met so far at the conference is just incredible group of people here. So I'm really, I feel privileged to be among you guys. I don't have a rare disease myself, and nor am I a caregiver to someone who has a rare d disease in a direct way. But I, I guess I, could, I can tell you more about you know so w what we're building um, yeah. as we get get into this. But uh, I'm I'm a physician by training, and in medical school I learned somewhere on the order of 200 diseases, which is pretty typical. I mean, how many diseases are out there? We know somewhere between seven and ten thousand diseases are out there. So that's a huge gap, and frankly. My colleagues and I just kind of fall down in that gap. And as we fall down, we fail to make the diagnoses that people are looking for for years sometimes. And I just keep hearing that story over and over here is that people, you know, they went from doctor to doctor trying to find answers and weren't finding them. What's that like from from your side? Because I know what I know what that's like on my side as a patient, Tim, because I went through that diagnostic odyssey. I, I had symptoms pop up. And after I got over the fact that I was going to quit ignoring the symptoms that were there, it got to the place where I had to start investigating. I figured that I would get some answers fairly quickly. It wasn't fairly quick for me. It, it took many stops, many different people, many different states many different specialists, right? And it was incredibly challenging and frustrating. For me, it was about 10 months. I, f I felt like that felt like forever, which it did. But I also know there's so many others that still don't have their diagnoses. They might be undiagnosed now, or it took them years to get together. From, from my side, it was an incredible challenge. How is it from the side of a physician? For the average primary care physician, what I, what I often see is you're just trying to like, let me as, as quickly as I can get to how can I help this patient in the like 15 minutes that I have with them today, you know? And if it starts to smell like something that's gonna take a long time, you, you just realize like, I can't even really fully address this today, which that always really bothered me a lot actually, which is part of why I'm not practicing clinically today. Instead, I'm trying to build sort of the foundation for a tomorrow where we can actually really truly address people's needs better. But a lot of times, basically, that triggers like, okay, I don't think I can deal with this in 15 minutes. Who can I refer to that might be able to deal, you know, go, go deep on this? Yeah, and I'm really appreciative of the work that my PCP did. He was, you know, really integral. He's the first person you go to, obviously, right? And, and I just shared at the session that I was, I was very privileged to be a part of here on, on mental health for rare adults before you and I came to, to chat here. And... One of the things that I talked about for that diagnostic odyssey was how lucky I am that I had a, a relationship with my PCP for 15 years prior to this happening, which is fairly unheard of. I tell people that sometimes they're like, excuse me, <laughs> you know, what, how long were you with that PCP? But it, he knew me as, as such, which was really helpful. And so he would make those referrals. He, he wouldn't accept the, the, the medical gaslighting that I was experiencing at some places and 
you know, that relationship that I was able to have with him, even though it was only a 15 minute appointment, you add those up over a space of 15 years. And then when I'm going through my diagnostic odyssey, Tim, trying to figure out what's going on, I was seeing him on a pretty regular basis. I couldn't appreciate that relationship more. That relationship I've seen is, it's really sad to me that I feel like that's kind of a dying breed, you know, that the people who have had that relationship with people and can have that relationship. I mean, a lot of it is just because people move around so much nowadays, but it's also just the way medical systems are set up now. It's sort of your doctor is just this commodity that's going to plug a doctor in where they're needed yeah, and it yeah. may or may not be your doctor, right. you know, <laughs> which has its efficiencies, but it totally, it makes it so that you don't know a person's story. Yeah. I don't know. I'm a big empathy guy. Right. Like I, I love empathy and Brandy Brown talks about how empathy and compassion are not finite, that everybody's hurt matters. And I completely latch on to that. And I would love to see more physicians with the mindset that my PCP has that you have, Tim, in this brief time that we've come to know each other over the last 24 hours. <laughs> I feel like we're kindred spirits here, but I would love to see more of that. And I just wonder as well what it's like on the, on the flip side for the doctors that are seeing somebody new every 15 minutes and you're rotating them through and come, you know, does that ever take a toll on you? Yeah. I mean, I think at least for me, I, I got into medicine because I, I really wanted to have a relationship with my patients, much like what you're describing, you know, that where you get to know someone over the course of years and get to know them really well and don't just have to say, I only have enough time to help you with one thing this this visit. And if you have other stuff, sorry, we're just going to have to like push it back or whatever. And I realize there are realities to practice, but that was a relationship that I always wanted to have with patients. And I could just see that the world that I'm coming into, you know, as I was coming through training, the world that I was coming into is not, it's getting, it's like, it's not that world and it's getting worse. You know, it's going in the other direction. And I don't know, I just wanted, I, I guess that was part of why I decided to make a change in my career direction so that I could sort of try to shape the world towards, back towards something that's a little more human, you know, where you can have that connection with people. Well, let's go there. Let's talk about it. Because when we, when we met and you started filling me in a little bit on what you're up to, I was really intrigued, caught my attention, caught my eye. Can you give us the rundown? What's this uh, big transition that's been happening for you here? Sure. Since we're talking stories here, yes. um, <laughs> I, I guess I'll tell you the, the story behind it. So I was, I was doing some research while I was in medical school. I was at UCSD and we were developing methods to sort of rapidly scan through human blood, the small molecule composition of human blood. And we were generating large data sets, right? We were, you know, across thousands of patients, we were measuring thousands of people, things in their blood. And... I remember I had this moment where I'm just, I was staring at this wall of numbers that was in front of me. And I realized that health and disease were right there, like on my screen. And I felt like I could almost reach out and touch them. And it, it was so tantalizing because it was there, but I couldn't, my, my human brain was just completely inadequate to grasp that level of complexity. And that, that's when I realized that human minds are going to need help from machine minds in order to really make full use of what we have in front of us. And I mean, there are tremendous things coming down the pipeline. And, and this, is, this is part of why genomics has sort of largely unfulfilled the promise of, you know, all the, all the hope that we had a couple of decades ago when we were really like, you know, getting closer to, to sequencing the human genome. We had all these great hopes and they've, a lot of them have been kind of unfulfilled and part of, partly it's just because it's a lot of this is just too complex for human, the unaided human brain to, to do. 
to use. So that really made an impression on me. And then as I continued through my, my clinical training, a number of factors kind of came together to tell me but by the end of my intern year in internal medicine, the time is right now to take a deeper dive on this. Let's figure out how are we going to bring together human and machine intelligence in healthcare. So I stepped off of the clinical track and, and went full time into exploring that question. Started going to conferences, reading books, you know, whatever I could, trying to reach out to mentors who, who were working in this space. And there were a few things that became apparent to me pretty quickly. One is that there are actually a lot of applications of artificial intelligence that are showing incredible results in the medical space, but it's in a research context. You know, people do incredible things and then they publish and then that's kind of it. Sure. And I was like, wow, that's, that's awesome. That is great. Yeah. Necessary, but, but <laughs> yeah. why wasn't I seeing this stuff in the clinic? You know, what's, what's, where's the, the disconnect there? So I kept digging in on that. Um, and part of it is the way that we organize our medical data right now. Our, our medical data is just sort of, you throw it into the electronic medical record system and it just kind of like, it lives in there as, as PDFs or as, you know, these big tables of information and stuff. And it turns out that that way of organizing data is just not very conducive to downstream analyses, but there are better ways to organize our data. And so I started working with some of those underlying architectures and building some recommendation engines off of them. And I was talking with a colleague uh, one of my co-founders, actually, who's, who works up at the Children's Hospital of Orange County. And he mentioned to me, like, look, rare disease is this big unmet need. What can we do with this? How can we address un, you know, rare diseases in a better way? And so we, we started looking into it, and we found some data sets that enabled us to, to um, basically build a system where you can put in your clinical findings and see what diseases are associated with those clinical findings. And you get just a list of diseases with, and then each of those diseases shows what findings are associated with each disease. So then you can go through and click and say, oh yeah, I do have that or I don't have that. And it reshuffles the list as you're, as you're working with it. And, and my hope is that this will help to bridge that gap, that huge gap between the 200 medical or diseases that I learned in medical school and the 10,000 diseases that are out there. And talking with people at this conference, actually, I initially was thinking that we would launch this as provider-facing application because I thought a lot of the search terms that you might use are things that are, would be unfamiliar to people. Sure. But I'm discovering that in the rare disease community, you guys know these terms. You guys have been like, you've been learning things and reading things and you guys can do this. Yeah, so yeah. we're actually, we're going to release it directly to patients. Wow. Okay. I like it. I, I'm still figuring out how that's going to work exactly, but <laughs> yeah. But I, I think you guys are ready for this. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. I think there's a lot of potential here and I commend you for taking that leap, right? Like, cause that's not an easy thing to just do. You see this data, see this need, see this area, and then be like, hey, well, let's go do something about it. And one thing that I can really connect with on you around that, Tim, is that a lot of us in the rare disease space, in addition to the, the wonderful qualities that you just, just shared there, we also are in a similar fashion doing the same thing. We see something there. We see that there's a need. We see it's unmet. We see there's potential. We see that it could be something groundbreaking, supporting, move things forward. In your case, moving, you know, the science forward. I, I love that. I, I love it. I, I think this is wonderful. And I'm excited to see where things go for you. Thank you. Yeah, I guess that is that is true. That's something that we share is that 
in one way or another, our lives have been have taken a big turn and have been disrupted in some way. And we're finding some very positive things that are coming from that too, in addition to the hard parts. Absolutely. You know, when we were chatting last night with another one of the attendees here from the, the scientific field, the part of the conversation that, that came up with the three of us was, you know, it can be it can be kind of a challenge coming in to an event like this and not having any direct affiliation with a rare disease. You don't have one, your kid, family members. And this, at some point, you know, you'll, you'll know somebody with a rare disease. And after this event, you'll know a lot of us. <laughs> but um, one, one thing that I wanted to make sure that was communicated to, to folks that are, you know, whether they're physicians or, or scientists or they're working in the field in other ways is that I appreciate you and the work that you are doing because it can be as much of a supportive community as we have. It can be isolating, at least for me. Right. Like there are times when I feel like I am the only one out there banging the drum, trying to make progress, trying to get things going, especially when it comes to, you know, my mitochondrial disease or my legislative advocacy or something like that. It can get to be a lonely road, even though I know I'm not alone on it, if that makes any sense. And to be able to connect with with folks like you and others without that direct impact, it means a lot to me. And I, I think it means a lot to, you know, others in the community as well. You know, it's something that I don't take lightly and that I'm, you know, able to, to see a little bit more after these few days here together with everybody. So thank you. Thanks. I was just listening to um, some really wonderful folks uh, in, in a previous session sharing about how they took this sort of leap of beginning to share their experience on social media and how it was like pretty scary for them at first. And there were a lot of sort of cultural barriers um, for, for some of them to, to doing that. And, but, but by doing that, they started to find that they weren't alone. They started to find people in the community who were like them. And it meant so much to them to find those people. And, and then they realized that those people were now also finding them and finding out that they weren't alone. Uh, I was, I was pretty moved by that, that the bravery that it took to sort of be vulnerable and just to put yourself out there and, and all the good that comes from that, from being vulnerable, saying, here I am and let's, let's connect and share, you know, this tough thing that we're going through together. Boy, I hear that because that, you know, the, the first thing for me, Tim, going through all of this was, oh my gosh, I'm the only person dealing with this in the world, right? going through the diagnostic odyssey after I got my diagnosis and after I found out there is no treatment or cure when I had falsely set myself up for those expectations of that's the road I was taking. And that and some corresponding, you know, instances that, that arose from that situation led me to a, a dark place for, for quite some time. And I finally started to scratch and claw my way out of it a little bit in part by doing what you just said, and that's finding others who are in the community and, you know, I talked about Effie and this fabulous pink bead bedazzled headset. She, she was, she was one of the first that I found online and it was just, it was a breath of fresh air. I'm like, okay, there, there are some people here, right? They, these people get me, they're going to be able to relate to me. And it was such a, a big thing for me. Mito Action, who sponsors this, this podcast and is kind enough to let me do the Parents is Rare series of their Energy in Action podcast boy, I found them and it was a, also a life changer for me because they were people who get it and you build that community. And I didn't anticipate Tim myself being in a position where I would be one sharing and reaching out 
and telling you know my story, helping others tell theirs, but here we are. It means a lot to me and I, I do have to continue the, the love fest for Effie because when I reached out to her to say, hey, do you, do you have any podcast episodes, Once Upon a Gene, that have a parent that has the rare disease? And she's a, she's a mama. Her and her, her husband have a, a, a son with a rare disease. And thus the previous conversations that I'd listened to, which are all fabulous, didn't directly relate to me. You know what I mean? And she's like, no, I don't, but you should be the first one. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm not doing that. <laughs> no, thank you, Effie. And then, you know, my, and all the listeners that have heard me tell this story before are probably tired of it, but I can't, I mean, I can't thank her enough for it. So I finally came around. I said, all right, I'll do it. And then a, a little bit of a poetic part with that, Tim, is I started online and social media. I never had a Twitter account, never had Instagram, none of that stuff. I'd steered clear for 36 years somehow. And I was like, well, if I want to connect with people, it's going to have to be through this medium. I did so anonymously. And one of the other people that I met early on knew me just as rare disease dad, the dadvocate, right? Reminded me last night that she remembered distinctly when I put my name on the account and I released my blog post. And that was done two years ago tomorrow from when we're recording this episode. So I guess to, to your, your point there, I love that you're seeing that. I love that you're taking that away. And I, I can't thank those that have come before me enough. And I'm hopefully paying it forward in a way that will benefit others, you know, at some point as well. It's, it's so powerful, so meaningful. That search for meaning, I think, is really, it's so important. I think in, in my most sort of, in my own dark moments, in my most jaded moments, as I have was coming up through, through my medical training, um, particularly in my intern year when, when things were pretty tough at, at one point, I sometimes wondered, like, what, what am I really doing here? Everyone's going to die anyway. Everyone's going to go through some hard things and then die. What am I really doing as a doctor? I'm not changing that at all. And I think... Like a soul-searching, introspective moment. That's big. That's big. Yeah. And, and I think the answer is what I'm seeing here. It's if you can help people live a healthier, happier life, that is fantastic. But I think the connections that people make while they're living that life, whatever life it is that you're living, the connections that you make and, and share with people are, I think, what gives so much meaning to our lives. You know, It's what takes us beyond just, oh, I feel good today or I feel bad today. I agree. Yeah. Well said. That's something that I've kind of grappled with and in a similar regard from the advocacy side, where I'm like, it's important. I want to do it. I'm doing it. I'm going to continue to do it. And there are times where I'm like, this isn't making a difference. We haven't passed this act. We haven't moved this bill through the Senate. It hasn't even seen the House yet. How close are we to getting some kind of a, a cure, a treatment for mitochondrial disease? And there are many of them. My mitochondrial myopathy, where are we in that process? And one, one thing that was a light bulb moment for me aligns with what you just said very well, where it was like a, I came to a realization where it's probably not going to be something that happens in my lifetime, right? However, we're still going through all the stuff we're going through right now. We're still dealing with it on a daily basis, an hourly basis, minute by minute basis. What can we do to support each other along the way, right? Like what can we do to help build that sense of community to help others know that, you know, we're here for them, that they're there for us, that it's this reciprocal relationship that's so important. And I 
agree with your, your statement there that, that it's here. This is it. I've been waiting to meet my people, you know, for a long time now. And this is wonderful. I, I kind of relate it to the first time I went to Wrigley Field because I'm a Cubs fan. <laughs> and when I set foot in Wrigley Field, my buddies that were with me, they just looked over my jaws just hanging down. And I just looked at them and I said, I'm with like 40,000 of my best friends right here. These are my people. <laughs> and there's not 40,000 of us here, but even the connection with you, Tim, like these are my people. This is wonderful. I'm so glad to be able to be at this event and to connect with folks like yourself. Yeah. It really has been just amazing. I agree. So let's get to the personal side of Tim before we wrap it up a little bit. So as, as you know, this is a Parents is Rare podcast. I learned that you have a three-year-old of your own. Tell us to, to whatever extent you're comfortable a little bit about what, what life is like outside of work for, for Tim. Well, yeah, I've got a three-year-old. She's wonderful. My, my wife is from Taiwan. And okay. uh, so we're raising her bilingual. My wife's been here for over 10 years now. So because we started off really with a heavy emphasis on teaching her Chinese, there was actually kind of a language barrier between her and I for a while. And I think between that and also in her earlier life, me being so having to work so much with being at residency and stuff, our relationship was not as close, but it, it's been fun to see her grow up. And I've, I feel like I have gotten a lot closer to her as she's gotten a little bit older and that language barrier has started to come down and we're able to sort of share experiences more together and communicate about them. So that's fun. And, and we both, my wife and I both work from home. So we're just there. And, and whenever my daughter's not at school, she's there too. And, and so that's, it's just a constant sort of juggling act. Sure. Um, yeah. But it's a fun one. It is. And it, it, you know, we've all got the juggling acts that we have that, that play out in a different way. And typically, you know, when the, when the guest that I'm talking with is another parent with a rare disease, I'm always curious to see how they approach the parenting side while they're navigating their rare disease. And I'm, I'm curious if I could tweak that, that question a bit for you and kind of put you on the spot a little bit, Tim, maybe there's somebody else out there that's going through residency that has, uh, has a kiddo. And maybe there's somebody else out there that is in the, the medical field or going into the more, you know, private sector. And I, I would be curious to see if you have any advice for, for those folks about how you can balance everything out from that home perspective, especially when you involve the little ones in the scenario. Honestly, I, I wish I had a good answer for you, but I don't. Residency just takes as much time as it's going to take, which is sometimes uh, there were times when I didn't see my daughter for five days at a time because she was in bed before I was home and I was you know I was gone before she was up. And I'm sure I'm not the only you know the medical profession's not the only one where that's the case for some families. I don't know. I guess you just try your best to remember that when you do have time together to to like stop and even you know. 10 or 15 minutes of just giving them your undivided attention can be enough to have some connection. Yeah, that resonates. I'm picking up what you're putting down there, Tim. I like, <laughs> I like that. And, and I say that resonates because there are times when that 10 to 15 minutes might be the 10 to 15 minutes that I have where I feel good, right? Or like, I feel like I've got enough energy after making it through a day, kids come home from school and all my little guy wants to do is play, you know, or all we want to do is, is talk or my daughter does some advocacy work herself. All she wants to do is come up with her next post or next idea. We've got mitochondrial disease aware, awareness week coming up. Like we're going to get going on that and get some things going. And it, it's hard and it's overwhelming. And sometimes I only have that small amount of time. But when you can make the most out of that and that's all you can do, that's great. And that's what you have to do. And, and you get through it, come out on the other side. And, and I love to hear that the relationships 
starting to blossom now between you and your daughter. I have pure speculation, Tim, but I have a feeling it's only going to continue on that upward trajectory just based on getting to know you a little bit here. Yeah, I'd like to think I do believe the same thing. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, Tim, I appreciate your time again. Thank you so much for joining me. And and before we sign off here, I, I do want to uh, give you the opportunity if there if you do have any any maybe websites where people can check you out, social platforms, email address, anything that you would feel comfortable with. If if anyone um, out there listening would like to get in touch, is there uh, anything that you'd like to share along those fronts here that we can put in the show notes? Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, so. Medical Intelligence One is the name of my company, and the product that it described earlier um, that helps people to try to find a diagnosis based on their clinical findings, it's called Enola. Can you spell that for us? It's E-N-O-L-A, which is Sherlock Holmes's sister. Okay. Um, (laughs) Thank you for unlocking that for me. I didn't know that. (laughs) And it's also alone spelled backwards. Oh, look at that. Hoping to kind of try to reverse the trajectory so that people aren't, you know, go from being perhaps alone to being finding their community. Oh my gosh, I love that. So Enola. And and so if you look, if you go to mi1.ai, you'll see there's a a product page that talks about Enola and um, you can request to be a beta tester on that if if you'd like to try it out. Fantastic. Well, we'll get that all jotted down, put the links out there for folks that are interested. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? Just my gratitude that you would let me join you here um, and my gratitude to the larger rare disease community for welcoming me with open arms. Fantastic. Well, sure appreciate you. Glad that our paths crossed. It's always really interesting to me to see how these types of things really come together and uh, really, really grateful. Thanks to you for taking the time. And as you mentioned, thanks to Global Genes for putting on this wonderful event. It's been fantastic. Looking forward to how things shape up for the rest of today and tomorrow before we wrap things up. And Tim, I'm really excited right now. I hope I didn't miss her, but Gail Devers is here. She had an awesome keynote today. Oh man, so good. I've got her book in my backpack and I want to go see if I can get a picture with the gold medals and get her to sign my book. So let's do it. All right. Sounds good. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Wonderful to be here with you. Uh, First live recording for the Parents is Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. I'm your host, Adam Johnson, and I'll see you next time. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Parents is Rare, a series of the Energy in Action podcast. Please be sure to leave a review and a rating for this episode wherever you listen and subscribe and listen to the Energy in Action podcast, where we talk all things Mito. Until next time, remember to show up, be vulnerable, supportive, and kind, and give yourself permission to feel along the way.